Greetings to those of you deep in the weeds and food bank. Feel your pain. I went to a conference this week in San Diego and it rained the whole time I was there. Exactly how it's supposed to be in San Diego. And I listened to two solid days of academics reading academic papers, theological topics. So, if I start talking about analytic theology, then let me just come up here and kick me. And, or if I, if I give you deep interest, it's just left over from that office. So, I'm really happy to be with you, but I'm really sympathetic of all your footnotes and stuff that you're working on this week. If you move towards the finish line this quarter, know that the staff is praying for you and that God is faithful. Genesis 17. So much to learn from Genesis 17. It's a massive chapter of great significance with some very difficult stuff in it. But there's a truth that's so simple and so powerful that I want you to observe in Genesis 17. Uh, that we're not going to look at every bit of this in detail. I trust you'll hear another sermon on Genesis 17 in your life. Uh, but this one will be focused on what I think is the main thrust, the theological emphasis of this chapter. And I want you to understand why it matters to your life uh, here on the week 8. So let's look at Genesis 17. I'll, I'll start by trying to carefully read it to you. That you might notice what God is saying through it. This is the word of God, Genesis 17, verse 1, the story of Abraham and the covenant that God made with him continues this way. Verse 7 verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, and Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name shall be called Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant 
which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised man who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised. And Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is the very word of the living God. Promises are made to be broken. Unfaithfulness is one of the most common sins in human experience. In fact, it was early in your life that you learned about something sacred on the playground called the Pinky Square. You know it? The Pinky Square. 
It was a solemn grade school, grade school covenant intended to ensure truth telling in the schoolyard full of liars. It was accompanied by epic and lyric poetry. Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Pinky swim. Sometimes sealed in an older generation before Purell. Sometimes spit shape. The idea was that you wanted to assure that you were telling the truth. And the reason it was necessary on the playground is because disloyalty and deceit and unfaithfulness was everywhere. And we get that. Because as you've grown older and encountered more and more liars, you've come to realize no one is perfectly reliable. No one is completely dependable. And just because you hear someone solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it doesn't make it so. In business, employers and employees are often disloyal, selling company secrets, stealing from one another. In politics, just watch TV any night for the next 12 months, and you will see promises and promises and promises and then watch TV a year from now, and you'll watch them all broken. Commitments made on the campaign trail, not delivered once elected, or you can look at the home. Marriages broken by discarded commitments, unfaithful spouses. Even in the church, there's unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness is one of the exceedingly obvious sins. As pastors who ought to hold their ecclesiastical vows and their integrity tight and do so. There's rare exceptions in this world. One pastor from a prior generation in thinking about the only example of faithfulness the Bible puts before us is immutable and unchanging and everlasting, but the faithfulness of God says, how refreshing then to lift our eyes above the scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things and faithful at all times. Genesis chapter 17 is not the making of a covenant, but it's the ratification the sealing, the sign, the reinforcement of covenant. And we've talked a lot about covenants these last few, few weeks in Genesis. We understand them to be promises, oaths, a kind of vow. But the covenant that we're looking at here is different than the covenants that were made all over the ancient world when they would cut an animal in half sacrificially, symbolizing what it would mean if one party was to break the deal, and then they would make the deal and walk through the animal together, the two business partners, or these two entering into this ancient ceremony, this covenantal agreement, 
Uh, and it was always done with, with vows and promises and sobriety and, and consequences. But this that we've seen God make with Abraham, first in a word of promise in chapter 12, and then reaffirming that verbally throughout Abram's life and experiences, and then putting Abram to sleep that night and doing this ceremony unilaterally, only God walking through the, the cut-up sacrificial animals and, and Abram being uh, a silent participant. Basically, God telling Abram that God and God alone will be the one who ensures faithfulness to this covenant. And if one party were to break it, it will not be God. The only party to be punished will be God himself. And so we felt a lot about God as a, a promise to be God. But in Genesis 17, this is the most significant ratification, the, the sealing, the affirmation, the, the official reminder, the cutting of the covenant happens tonight. And it's a scene to our Western eyes and to our modern eyes and to our scientific eyes that is potentially uncomfortable to read about, to think about, and not that easy to understand and explain as to why this is the sign. Uh, small surgical procedure, not invented by Genesis 17, but something that existed, circumcision in the ancient world, practiced hundreds of years prior to this in Egypt and in among Amorites and different people groups in the ancient Near East for various reasons, often because of worship practices. But here God chooses it to be the way that he seals his promise to Abraham. Because he always seals his promises. You remember his covenant with Noah. He sealed that with a sign, a symbol. What was it? There's a rainbow. Whenever God makes a promise, he seals it, he signs it, he has a, a physical indication of it. And for Abraham, who is the father of Israel, would be this matter of male circumcision. What's going on here in this chapter? Besides everybody feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Not just the guys lined up. Going to Abraham's surgical tent in the chapter. <laughs> They're feeling real. <laughs> but what does this have for all of us? Why is it so forthright? Well, I want you to know this is a chapter about our covenant keeping God. And as I make these Three observations just through this chapter. I'm not covering every detail here, but trying to really bring the relevance of Genesis 17 to, to week 8 today. I hope you'll notice that this text is focused not ultimately on man, but if we're going to have a promise keeping God, 
wants us to know what he is like. Because he's the one who's ensuring this promise will be understood. He's the one who's in focus in this chapter. So let me show you three things about this promise-keeping, covenant-making God. Because this is a chapter about covenants. Sealed, signed, promised, ratified. It's a chapter about faithful promises that God will not break. And there's help here for us. First off, the first reality about our our promise-keeping God, this may sound simple, but let me help you see this. Our promise-keeping God, first off, is in control. He's in control. Why does that matter? Well, I'll show you to you a few ways. Please note that the theme of this chapter is covenant. It's a word that occurs in Hebrew 13 times. In verse 2, I'll establish my covenant. In verse 4, my covenant is with you. Verse 7, my covenant between thee. Verse 7, an everlasting covenant. Verse 9, shall keep my covenant. Verse 10, this is my covenant. Verse 11, the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, my covenant. Again, everlasting covenant. Verse 14, has broken my covenant. Verse 19, my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. And finally, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. What do you think the theme of the chapter is? Covenant. It's admissible. God is in control because he is a promise-keeping God. He's a God who reveals himself. And what makes this covenant so unique in its context in the ancient Near Eastern milieu is that this God is involved in a covenant. There is no other deity in all of ancient Near Eastern literature, among the Babylonians, among the Mesopotamians, among any of the ancient people groups whose God makes a covenant, an inviolable promise. This is so remarkable because other deities, gods, goddesses, false idols, the Bible would call them, but nonetheless, they were worshipped by countless people, groups, and nations. Those gods would threaten, and they would manipulate, and they could offer blessings, but never once in all of ancient religion did any of these deities enter into a covenant with mankind. This makes our God unique. And he demonstrates his control because at the very outset in chapter 12 of Genesis, God revealed himself to Abram. Abram wasn't looking for God. Abram wasn't knocking on heaven's door. Abram wasn't trying to make a bargain with God to get rain to come or prosperity in his life. But God intervened in Abram's life. And God is in control because he's the one who's committed to making initiative with his people. This disproves anyone who could think for a second that God is indifferent 
or apathetic towards us. The fact that this God who would later prove this by way of incarnation, that blessed interruption of human affairs where God himself would take on flesh far before he was ever God incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was God who made a promise, who entered into a covenant with mankind. A God so solemnly committed to showing himself and committing himself that he entered into this agreement, into this promise, into this unilateral commitment with mankind. He is in control of it because it's by his initiative and it's by his ways. He's in control and he's in focus here because if you were to take your highlighter or your finger, if you use an iPad and do the highlighting function, it wasn't necessarily English, but you know what I mean, and you were to highlight or underline the parts of chapter 17 where God is speaking, you would have to underline verses 1 through 8, minus that one little opening half sentence. You'd have to underline verses 9 through 14, and you would have to underline verses 15 through 22. That's all God talking. Abram offers some laughter, a few brief punctuated sentences, but God is the one speaking. God is the one revealing. God is the one in focus. God dominates this chapter, and he's showing something, uh, she's showing us something about himself by proving that he is the promise-keeping God. He is the covenant-making God. And if you can't understand covenants, you can't understand the God of the Bible. His reaffirming this covenant that he began to make in chapter 12 and slightly expands upon in chapter 17, adding a few details, which we'll see in a moment, of this basic promise that Abram will be his man, that he is promising him that he will receive a place, a land, Canaan he calls it, a place to inhabit, a place to dwell, a place for his own possession. And then he promises Abram that he will be a great people. This promise that Abram will have offspring, and Abram and Sarai were childless, and are to this minute. I mean, Abram had a kid, but it was not a good method. It was the divine interruption program started in chapter 16 by Sarai with a bad idea, and it blew the family up, and Hagar, and you remember that one. You know, two weeks ago, read chapter 16, it was fun. But they don't have a child. Abram does. It's not a child of promise. But God's promise for all these years now has been, you'll have a land, you'll have a people, which means lots of kids, and they'll have lots of kids, and they'll have lots of kids. And, and now that promise is being expanded to not only be a people, but these people will be nation. And then God promises that those who bless him will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed. Well, Abraham's seen a little bit of that. He's seen a little bit of blessings, certainly, material prosperity. He, he, Abraham's loaded. 
He's got a lot of camels and stuff. He, he went through Egypt and he came out better than he was. He's, he's got this great you know, amount of servants, 318 fighting men, and uh, lots of possessions and gold. And so he has been blessed materially. And God has definitely intervened in rescuing Abram, sometimes from his own foolish decisions, other times from enemies who raised up against him. And so he's seen a little bit of that. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And the final part of that promise, though, is that he will be a blessing to all the earth. I mean, that's a wild promise. What does that mean? And obviously, that's contingent on him having a kid. And he's still, he and Sarah still are childless. And they're still wandering people. They don't have any land. But you see, God's ways are not our ways. We wish God's promises were like a snack machine on campus. You just tap your phone in there and you hit B3 and a, a vitamin water clunks right out normally. Or whatever it is you want out of that machine. It's something with lots of preservatives in it. And you just hit the button and you get the thing. But God's promises aren't like that. They're not on our timetable, they're on his timetable. The verse I'd like to show you is, is the verse between chapter 16, verse 16, and chapter 17, verse 1. Will someone read me that verse? The verse between chapter 16, verse 16, and chapter 17, verse 1. Anyone see that verse there? Good, you read it. There isn't a verse there. It's a blank space. Like a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> There's just space. There's no verse there. But something did happen. Come on, math people. Work with me. 16, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Verse 17, 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, do it. And what happened in those years? We've got no information. Did Abram get land? No. Did Abram get children? Yeah. Got Ishmael, he's 13 now, but not the son of promise. Has he seen blessings? Has he seen cursings? We, we have no idea. We have to assume those 13 years of blank space were ordinary. More of what we've seen since chapter 12, which is waiting. But here's what remains in between those two chapters. God is in control. And so much of trusting a promise-keeping God has to do with us living life day by day in ordinary, not extraordinary ways. So much of Christianity, of following God, of being a disciple of Jesus, is very much the things that you do day to day. 
It involves breakfast and classes and studying and going to the DMV and paying your bills and, and doing the ordinary things. Are you ready to wait for God's promises and wait to see the fulfillment of God's grand designs for 13 years of life? You see, if you're in control of God's promise, it would never be like that. It would be mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop experience, but God is in control of his promises. And so sometimes there are long periods of waiting, long periods of praying, long periods of expecting, not long periods full of fulfillment, but instead of ordinariness. God's in control of his promise. He dominates this scene. He's going to reaffirm his promise. But please remember, Abram's been waiting, not just for 13 years, but for decades now, since the promise was originally made to him in chapter 12. It has been longer than most of you have been alive that Abram has been waiting for God to fulfill his good word. And that requires patience. And that requires a waiting on God. And it's a realization that no matter how stubborn you are and how impatient you are, God is more firm than you and he is more patient than you are. He is working according to his plan and his timetable. And here are his unguessable ways on display as Abram celebrates another birthday and puts 99 candles in his unleavened cake. <laughs> 99. I'm taking him two weeks to blow those things up. And another birthday rolls by and God still hasn't fulfilled his promise. But instead, El Shaddai shows up on this birthday, and we can assume he hasn't showed up for 13 years. But after these 13 years, after the whole incident with Hagar and Ishmael, God does speak. And he shows himself to still be committed to the promise. He calls himself El Shaddai in verse 1. It's a word that's usually translated the mighty one. We don't know exactly what it means, but in the context that it's used throughout the Old Testament, he usually speaks of God's power. And at the outset, he asks Abram to walk before him, to follow him, to be blameless, to be perfect as God is perfect, and then reminds him that he's still committed to establishing the covenant that he made with Abram, and then he reaffirms the promise, multiply exceedingly. And in the retelling of the promise, we start to see another thing about this promise-keeping God. Number one, we see he's in control as he dominates this entire scene, and as he initiates this speech, and as he has been in control, even in the waiting years, the hard times, it's been his promise, his to control, his to produce, his to act upon. But now we see another thing about God as this promise unfolds and expands a little bit, and it's this. Our promise-keeping God provides power and assurance 
provides power and assurance, and that's what accompanies this promise. And so he speaks, and he says, I will establish. And he says, my covenant is with you. And he tells him things he's told him before. You'll be the father of multitude of nations, verse 4. And verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, and your name shall be called Abraham. Now this is a unique part of chapter 17, because there are two significant changes that God makes. One is a surgical and fleshly change he'll make in Abram, uh, that will be very memorable. And then the other one is one that I think is equally memorable, because he's going to change a 99-year-old person's name. That's impressive. He's Abram. It means a father, a great father. And he just puts a little suffix on that to make him Abraham, which means very great father. And so now when Abram goes to the DMV to get his license changed, he has to tell the person, well, Yahweh changed my name. And the sloth is like, what? <laughs> he says, Abraham. So the sloth says, Abraham. Adds and would have to ask the question, well, how many kids is it that you have that warranted such a name change from father to great father? Greater father. And Abraham would still say, Sarah and I, have not been blessed with the kingdom. But God promises I'll be a, a great, great, magnificent kind of father. What's God doing there? Is he rubbing it in? He, he does the same thing with Sarai in verse 15. You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So Abram is going to come home and say, hey, Sarah, why'd you call me Sarah? <laughs> well, from now on, we have to call each other by these new names. One of the things I love about this chapter is as soon as their names are changed, they immediately institute the change. I don't know if it was always that easy in every conversation in their tent, but... They have a new name, and her name means like great princess, something like that. And so when she's at the grocery store, you know what I mean? People would ask her, with such a queenly name, how many children have you been blessed with? And she's getting up there in years too, and she says, none yet. And yet, it's the most ridiculous thing she could possibly say. And so laughter accompanies Abram's receipt of this promise. It accompanies Sarah's receipt. And it's going to be their son's name, Isaac, laughter. But all along the way, God is going to provide the power and assurance that his promise will be kept by him. And so instead of saying... Abram, you just got to be patient. You got to wait. He doubles down. Let's start calling you Abraham. And let's call her Sarah. And let me give you a little more insight into this thing. 
I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, verse 6. And make a nation of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. He is pressing this thing because now he keeps using a word. He said covenant, he's going to say covenant 13 times, but he's going to use words like exceedingly in verse 6. And then most significantly, he's going to use the word everlasting in verse 7, and everlasting in verse 8, and everlasting in verse 13, and everlasting in verse 19. You see, God is not content with apathy towards his promise. You may have started to wonder and doubt if what God says is true. God believes it all the more. And he expects his faithful servants to join him in this kind of duplication of faith and belief. And so he calls Abram, Abraham. And he calls Sarai, Sarah. And he calls his covenant an everlasting one, an everlasting one, an everlasting one. And he says, you'll be exceedingly fruitful. And what's so stunning about the, the promise that has power and assurance in it now is that Abram had to be thinking about what it says in verse 8. If it wasn't verse 8, it was just the middle of God's speech. And God said, I'll give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I found a contradiction in the Bible. Can I show it to you? Look with me in chapter 12. We have a problem here. So God says that he's going to show Abram a land in chapter 12, verse 1, right? I'll show you the land. And he tells him he's going to bless him, and he tells him that all the families of the earth will be blessed, and then Abram follows God in faith. That, that's always to Abram's credit. Is he, he keeps on believing and keeps on following. And, and he doesn't waver in that faith. He, he makes some bad choices and he sins. And he, he's unfaithful to the promise, but he, he keeps going. And now move forward to chapter 13. Because Abram pooches the thing badly in Egypt by trying to hide his wife as his sister and that backfires and, and things go very, very badly there. But in chapter 13, Abram understood that this promise was to his offspring for the land. And this is significant and this is important. And so God reaffirms the promise in verse 14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land that you see, I'll give it to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants will also be numbered. So there's the same kind of promise, right? It's that this land will belong to you and to all your descendants. But then when you go forward, go forward with me to chapter 15, God gives Abram more information. 
Information that he didn't have when he heard the promise in chapter 12 or when God reaffirmed the promise in chapter 13. But now he gives him some further details in chapter 15, verse 12. The sun's going down, terror, great darkness. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions, and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In this promise, verse 18, on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So most Bible teachers here would have to understand this to mean, okay, so the land promise, the promise of the, the, the place for Abram to have is not going to be occupied by Abram. And that's how the story goes. He dies before they enter the land. Instead, and God has already made this clear, it will be his descendants. And it won't be as soon as Abraham dies. It will be 400 years of captivity. And then after that, the descendants will be. I mean, this is a long-term land promise. But here, it's either that God forgot that he made a clarifying statement about the descendants getting the land and not actually Abraham. Abraham will live a long time, but he won't ever be in the land or God understands there's more to this promise than meets the eye. So it's either a contradiction, or it's a promise that Abram will too inherit the land. But God just said he won't, but the descendants will get it, and not for another 400 years. How does this work? Well, this promise-keeping God, this promise has so much more power in it than you've realized. There's so much more assurance in it than you could ever imagine. So that when Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith is described in the New Testament, uh, along with those others who believe like Abraham believes in, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that they believed these promises went far beyond their earthly, temporary fulfillment. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have that opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abram had to believe that the promise of a place would be fulfilled for himself even after he died. Do you get that? 
So this promise is magnified, it's multiplied, it's exponentially bigger than at first glance. And Abraham gets that in chapter 17 by God reaffirming that he will, that Abraham will inherit this land. How? Abraham's going to die at a ripe old age, his descendants are going to continue for 400 years, then they're going to enter the promised land, and then they're going to occupy it. I'll tell you how. God will make Abraham live again. That is how awesome and unbreakable God's promises are. That even death itself cannot defeat the promise of God. And so Abraham is believing a promise that goes beyond his earthly life. This is the power of God's promise. This is the assurance that accompanies God's promise. That not even death can stand in the way of fulfilling that promise. You will know that Abram believes this when he ties up that promised son and puts him on an altar. Because if you can believe God's promises, then you can certainly believe that this God will keep them, even if it involves resurrection. And that's what this promise involves. This forevermore kind of covenant outlasts Abram's, Abraham's earthly life. And then, because that heavenly country isn't like puff marshmallow cloud harp land, the Bible doesn't present heaven as an immaterial, wispy, zen state. Instead, the Bible presents heaven as the reason it's a heavenly country is that the source is heaven. Someday a city comes down and inhabits this earth. Heaven is, in one sense, the boat of God, but in the full and final sense, heaven will inhabit this actual planet. And when it does, Abraham will walk on the land that God promised him. He will hold on to God's promise in a way that will fulfill every single word that God ever spoke. Because not one of his words will fall to the ground. Because with God's promises, he provides both power and assurance. And so he reaffirms them and says, it's an everlasting covenant. He tells Abraham, it is for you and your descendants. So God's trying to show us that he's in control, that he keeps his promises and accompanies them with power and assurance. And then finally, God tries to show us that he expects, when we hear his promise, to obey him. And that's all the circumcision talk. God adopts a practice that humans knew about and makes it special. In the ancient world, there was the kinds of circumcision of the sexual organs, male and female, not in God's economy. At this point, he institutes something that will involve eight-day-old male infants. And these eight-day-old male infants will be circumcised. It will be a mark of Jewishness for centuries to come. It will be a brand on their physical bodies. They will have this 
surgery on a little baby boy to this day among Jewish people that marks his flesh in a undeniable way. It marks him in a way and in a place that affects his progeny, his children, and it marks him in a way that is both private and personal. So that Abram would be able to see every time he saw this physical change that he in his body, in his flesh, in his person, as it related to the promise about him having kids and descendants, and God using those descendants to bless the earth and eventually bring the Messiah, that Abram would see this not in a medical way or in a clinical way or even in a, a highly sexualized way. Abram would see this as a sign. And the sign said exactly what God says it said. It is my covenant, verse 10, that you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. He is the one who establishes it. Over and over he says, he establishes, establishes, so that when Abram would see this mark on his body, he would know what it means. And it meant for Abraham, he could look at it and say, I am not my own. I belong to another. I belong to a covenant-keeping God. Because this physical sign is tied to the reality in verse 8, central verse of this whole chapter, when God says that he establishes the covenant, verse 7, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting possession, and he makes a promise and this cutting stands for the promise in verse 8. The final words of the verse. I will be their God. As the rainbow is a sign of the Noahic covenant, and the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant at Sinai, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it would take on this new meaning for Jewish people that reminded them that they belonged to God and they were the recipients of God's promise that in their male members they were gods and they were intended to be gods and it could be a ritual without significance because lots of people could have this surgery done to them but not everybody could understand how significant this promise is which is I will be their God. That's what God is promising. That's what's on display, and that's what's so phenomenal about this sign. 
What exactly is God saying to Abraham when he says, I will be your God? Well, he's saying to Abraham something that he will say, not just to every circumcised Jewish male, but to all of his chosen people, which would include all of those who are Abraham's children by faith, not by the cutting of the flesh, but by believing in the promise of God. Therefore, you and I are also hearing something uh, according to this promise that has to do with us. And the words we're hearing is that God will be our God. He has signed it. He has sealed it. He has reaffirmed it. He has promised it. And though Abram's promise of children has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled both physically and spiritually, the land promise that Abram would walk on it has yet to be fulfilled. But here's the reality that every one of us can hang on to if you have faith in the Son of God, if you have faith in the child of promise, if you have the faith of Abraham to believe the word of God. I quote an author, Donald McLeod. What does it mean when God says, I will be your God? It means that God is saying to Abraham and to you, I will be for you. I will exist for you. I will exercise my godness for you. I will be committed to you. And there is no way that that can be improved upon. There is no more glorious promise. Not in Romans, not in Hebrews, not in Revelation, not in the Gospel of John, not in the upper room, nowhere. These words in Genesis 17 verse 8 are the finest words that you can hold on to in the entire Bible. These words of the Abrahamic covenant have never been improved upon. They have never been exceeded and they never will be. I will be your God. What a promise. Unbreakable, inviolable, how perfect and how strong to know that we have the promise that God will be ours and therefore we will be his. And that's why he demands obedience. And for these men in chapter 17, from Ishmael to Abraham to every one of those 318, 12, or 8, don't remember the number, fighting men, and for all the servants in his camp, it meant that they're lining up at the tent with the sharp implements that says C on the side. And they're going in one way and they're coming out the other. And they're going to get a few days off. For you and for me, it means that we hold by faith that God is ours and we are his. And so we look at our bodies and we may not see a physical sign like the Jewish people do. What we see is a new covenant built upon that old covenant, but sealed not with the cutting of our flesh, but the destruction of the flesh of the Son of God. Not with our blood, but with His blood. And that's what the new covenant entails. You see, we are covenant-keeping people too. And when the Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament, in Colossians 2, for example, he says, in Him also, in Jesus, you were circumcised. Not with the circumcision made without hands 
But by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's because circumcision was a sign and only a sign. It intended and would very soon point to the need for these people to have their hearts cut, to have their hearts surgery. To have their hearts made new. And that's the fulfillment that we find by faith in Christ. So the question for you tonight isn't about circumcision because Galatians 6.15 says it doesn't count for anything. But a new creation does. The question for you tonight is do you have faith in him? The God who is in control, the promise-keeping God who provides power and assurance, and the promise-keeping God who expects your unrivaled obedience, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love.